today, I want to begin this sermon by giving, uh, sort of setting the table, if you will, of the meal that we're going to partake from the bread of life. So we're going to give a little bit of background so we have an idea where we're going. And I want to talk to you about slogans. Slogans. They are short phrases, sometimes very startling, that are designed to put uh, a desire or to impart an idea into our minds. For example, when I was driving down Country Road 32, they had this little uh, sign there, a poster, uh, actually a billboard, and it was in dark, really scary colors, had a skull and crossbones on it, and it said, carbon monoxide, be alarmed. And I thought, that's a great slogan. But many slogans are very catchy, and they stick in your mind. So, for example, if I showed you this corporate logo and I asked you for their slogan, you would tell me in response, it is, I'm loving it. That's right. I'm loving it. Now, what about this corporate logo? Just do it. Right. Very good. Now, the next one I'm going to show you is very interesting because depending on how old you are, it will date you. So take a look at this one. What is the slogan for this company? Now, almost everybody said finger licking good. So we are all old here. I remember that as well. That's okay. Now, the interesting thing is if you are born uh, about maybe after the 80s or so, they've actually changed that logo. And it is, it is now, i got to remember, it is um, nobody does chicken like KFC. Good luck with that. It's not as catchy. Actually, they've even modernized it to so good. Good luck with that one. But the interesting thing about this particular logo as well is that, again, depending on how old you are, see, the younger generation knows this company only as KFC. But we know it as... Kentucky Fried Chicken. And depending on how old you are, you actually know the name of the individual there, who is Colonel Sanders. And if you're into trivia, then you would also know that he's not really a colonel. But now I digress. I totally digress. The point that I'm trying to make is that in this modern world, slogans are everywhere. There's probably no place you could go where you wouldn't hear some sort of slogan of some sort. It's just everywhere. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go back to the ancient world. Often we think it's separated from where we live. But in this ancient world, in this ancient city that we're going to study, we will find that they were abounded with slogans. And the Christian church in this ancient city was in trouble. They were struggling spiritually. And we're going to do two things in our study of the word. First, we're going to establish that this ancient city is really no different than the modern-day city of Belleville or the modern-day city of any other city in this world. We're going to establish that. And then secondly, we're going to see how when they reached out to the apostle and the apostle gave them recommendations, gave them inspired suggestions of how to change their lives, those recommendations that were millennia ago still apply today with equal power and force. So my sermon is entitled today, Slogans Think Different. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, this is your moment where your word is going to be presented and discussed. We ask God that you open our minds so that your eternal wisdom enters into it. We ask, Lord, that you open our spirits, that your Holy Spirit may enter us and nudge us on the path that we need to go in understanding what is going to be shared. And finally, Lord, we ask that you open our hearts so we can receive your love and realize that everything in your word is to draw us closer to that love. We ask these things 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin today by establishing how that ancient world is very similar to ours today. So that ancient city that we're going to talk about is the city of Corinth. Corinth. Now, for those of you that are not sure where it is, here's a map of southern Europe, and we're going to be looking at this area here flashing. And when we zoom in on that, Corinth is located right here on the map. It's approximately 40 kilometers away from the city of Athens. Now, when we think of Athens, we think that's the place in Greece, right? You know, that's, that's sort of what we're taught in school. That's what's in the history books. But back in the ancient world, Corinth was the place. It was the city. It was a really big city, about a million people in and around the city center. It was so important, it was actually considered the province of southern Greece under the Roman Empire because they had it into provinces. This city was a cosmopolitan city. You would see many different cultures there. It was a place for business. If you want to start a good business, you knew you went to Corinth. In fact, if you went broke somewhere else, you restarted your life in Corinth because there was so much financial opportunity there. Corinth was so important that it was a military strategic point. So how is it that this city that is no longer that major center, in fact, I should mention that uh, if you go to that area today, there is a modern-day city of Corinth that's just a few kilometers away from the ancient city of Corinth. But how is it that this, this ancient city was so important back at that time? Well, the reason is, is because it was located in a little strip six kilometers long between two seas. The Aegean Sea on your, your left and on the Ionian Sea on your right. You see... If you wanted to get your products or you needed to go to battle on the other side of the Mediterranean, there was really two choices. You could take your ships with your products or soldiers or whatever it is and go around the bottom of the Greek Isles, which would mean that you'd also have to face the, the, the seas, the weather, and all of that, which not only took longer, but also meant that that you had a greater risk, or you could go to the city of Corinth and bring your items and wares and have them transported that six kilometers to get to the other side, shortening all of your time frames. Now, this was so important back in the ancient times that they actually built this phenomenal piece of engineering. They actually built a special roadway. I'm going to show you a split screen here. So on your left, you can see way back, there's a little bit of ocean. That's from one of the seas there. And you see this, this cobblestone way. It looks like a cobblestone way. In fact, it's very, very heavy stones. And if you go a little bit further down the road, on the right, you'll see that there's grooves in those stones. What they did, they were so ingenious back in that day that they had a way of not just taking cargo, but the entire ship. They brought it out of the sea, and they put it on a rail car of sorts and carted it the six kilometers to the other sea. Here is a digital reconstruction done by a historical society to give you a flavor of what that would have looked like. You can imagine the engineering that had to go involved, the cost, the manpower. But because of this, the city of Corinth flourished because all kinds of vendors would come into this city and they would bring their wares and they allowed it to be a prosperous, rich city. An amazing feat of engineering back in that time. But this is a, a little map of the, the, the city of Corinth based on an archaeological dig. If you go there today, some of the structures are partially standing, but this is based on some of the archaeology. And when you look at the city of Corinth, you will find that it had multiple places of worship. 
They would, the major temple that is still partially standing is the Temple of Apollo. You'd have Temple of Octavia and a, a Temple of Athena because it was also a place that mixed Roman and Greek culture. But of course, no city is a good city unless you have great shopping. And so they had multiple shopping centers there. And you have to understand, because of all the people coming in and out, all of the materials and wares coming in and out, this was literally a place where you could buy a gift for the person who has everything. Because it would be something new, never seen in the world, that would be in one of these many shops. And once you have decked yourself out and you're looking great after buying some sort of new outfit, you want to go and show yourself. So you go to the entertainment district. And they had an inner, um, sort of a covered uh, stadium and an outside sports-type stadium. In fact, this, this city was so popular that it actually had um, a, a biannual, it would be like a Pan Am-type games. Every, uh, every twice a year. And so people would come from that and flock from all over the Mediterranean. Even in the city streets, you would see the names of some of the benefactors that helped build the streets. Very much like what we do by honoring people by giving them a street name. So here you have this modern day city of the ancient world. It had its engineering feats. It had its entertainment district. It had its great shopping. It had places that you could go to worship. Really, all we are missing is a little bit of Wi-Fi, and it would not be much different than some of our cities today. And as I said before, this Christian church, really a church plant, was in trouble. It was suffering from infighting. It was suffering from backsliding. It was suffering from people that were struggling to find a way to grow spiritually. Do we have that in our churches today? Yes, we do. So the message that we, we, we're going to get into, that the Apostle Paul, the original church planter, talks about is very relevant to our situation today. So the people in Corinth, they wrote a letter to Paul because he was the church planter. If you read Acts 18, you'll see that he spent about a year and six months in there. He worked in some of those shops, so he knew the city well. He spent time teaching the people about Christ, about how to worship him in spirit and truth, about the Holy Spirit. And then he moved on for his missionary journey. But when he received the letter from the people of Corinth, knowing them as he did, knowing the city as he did, he wrote them back in a manner that they would grasp instantly. And that brings us to our scriptures. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, as I normally do, I will have the text on the screen. So if you want to give your finger a Sabbath rest, by all means, feel free to do so. You're also welcome to take notes. I will be reading from the New King James Version. But follow along in whatever version that you have. And we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 12. Just the first part of verse 12. And when you're all there, just say amen. Okay. So it begins, all things are lawful for me. We pause right there. This is the Apostle Paul writing this. Now we have to pause because this doesn't really make sense. The Apostle Paul had an encounter with Christ, was infilled with the Holy Spirit. He knew the word from his pharisaical training. Do you think he would have actually have said that all things are lawful for him? Yes or no? No, he wouldn't have. All things are not lawful. What we are actually looking at here is a slogan 
of the city of Corinth. This is the first slogan. We should actually put this in quotation marks. Depending on your Bible, you would actually have quotation marks depending on the version that you have. Biblical scholars today agree that this is not actually Paul talking about himself, but he's quoting a slogan of the day. Now this is interesting because this slogan kind of lives on today in a little bit of a different form. Have you ever heard of, for example, having living a life without limits? Or perhaps you can have it all. You can have it all. All you got to do is just do it. Okay, I'm mixing in another slogan there. But, but you know, this is a, a very common in what I would call the empowerment culture. You can live a life without limit. However, we know that these statements are inherently untrue. Because if you go after Sabbath and take out your credit card and live a life without limit, you will find that you have a limit. And they will probably call you soon after to collect on that limit. Or if you said to your spouse, you know, I want to have it all, including the neighbor next door, you probably will get it all. Maybe a chair across the back as well, too, as well as everything else get thrown out of the house. There are limits in life. But today, in this society, we are mirroring what we are seeing in the ancient world. So the Apostle Paul starts off with this slogan, but he starts to break it down. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Well, we know that. And he goes on, he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He's making it very clear. It does not matter to me how the world says I should live or wants to define me. I will not be defined by this culture. Now he moves on to another slogan. Food for the stomach and the stomach for foods. This is actually a really great slogan. I'm, I'm surprised some restaurant hasn't used that today. But you can almost imagine how people walking down the city streets of Corinth with the food vendors uh, doing their wares, saying, food for the stomach, stomach for the foods, to get people to come and eat. It's a great slogan. But there's issues with it. Because back in that culture... See, they had started to disconnect with the purpose of food. See, food is important. I love a good meal. I'm sure you all do too. But the real focus of food is not in and of itself, but how it brings people together. You look in the scripture and, and some of the most significant um, uh, uh, discussions happened around meals. In our modern times, around the dinner table, you know, food brings people together, allows a parent to talk to their child. How was your day? Okay. All right. Well, it's not maybe much of a conversation, but that's the purpose of the meal, to bring it together. It could be around a banquet or even around a potluck. Food is important, but it's how it is brought to get, how it brings people together to connect. But you see, back in this ancient culture, of Corinth, they had become foodies. Now, if you've done any study of Roman culture, because this is a Greco-Roman culture, they had adopted a lot of those ways. And one of the things that you will find is that when they would have their large banquets, it was not uncommon for them to eat a lot of food, and then they were like, oh, well, there's so much more left. So they went to a specially designated place to throw up everything that they had eaten so they can then go back and eat more. See, it was more about the food than it was about the fellowship. Do we have that today? Well, have you ever seen a picture of food posted on social media? This is a very common practice in fact, I just read an article this morning that talks about that there is a whole generation now that is very interested, more interested in posting the meal up on Facebook than they are about actually eating it. 
And in fact, some people learn how to cook exotic dishes because exotic dishes look better on social media than, say, you know, omelets and whatever. We have a culture that's very much a foodie culture. We have programs that you can watch 24-7 that is focused on food. We too have become disconnected from the fact that food brings us together. The food is the thing. Well, what does the Apostle Paul have to say about that? We go back to Corinthians. Food for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Some versions say it more succinctly. God will destroy them both. He's making it very blunt that if we are focused on food, if we are focused on fulfilling our appetites, it will ultimately lead to destruction. Now, why is the Apostle Paul talking about these slogans? Well, you see, what he's doing is he's creating what I call a thin edge of a wedge. He is trying to separate in the minds of his fellow Corinthians that he knows well, he's trying to separate the culture of the world from the culture that Christ calls us to. He's trying to show that if you follow these things, if you go along with the slogans of the world, ultimately these pleasures that you get from it, satisfying these appetites, will not last and ultimately lead to death. But if you pursue righteousness in Christ, if you pursue a life of spiritual growth in Christ, not only is that a worthy pursuit, but the benefits are eternal. So from this point on in the discussion, you'll see that he starts to lift the conversation ever more spiritual, ever more heavenward. And we see that right now. So he starts off with these these slogans and then he goes on and he says now the body is not for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body and god both raised up the lord and will also raise us up by his power it's kind of a bit of a play here he's actually kind of creating his own little slogan by sort of saying the body is for the lord and the lord for the body but he's making it clear that it is definitely not for sexual immorality. He's saying here that if we fall into that, if we have a struggle with that, just as God has raised up his son, Jesus Christ, he will give us the power ultimately to come out of whatever immorality that we are in. Now, the Apostle Paul speaks about sexual immorality because it was a really big problem at the time of the Corinthians. I'm going to read to you um, from a book called Space, Place, and Landscape in Ancient Greek Literature and Culture. And in this book, they cite an ancient writer who lived in Corinth at the time. So we're hearing from an actual person that witnessed Corinth. He says, the temple of Aphrodite was so rich that it owned more than 1,000 prostitutes, both men and women. And it was on account of these that the city was crowded with people and grew rich. In other words, he's saying, because so many people came to the city to worship that the gods looked pleasantly down upon the city and blessed it. Now you see, this kind of behavior had started to filter into the mind of the, the Christian church at Corinth. They started to confuse and mix behaviors and said, well, you know, I'm going to go worship. And they started to engage in other types of sexual immorality. Now, that's what happened in ancient Corinth. Is sexual immorality an issue in our church today? Yes or no? Yes? 
you'll find that many people are struggling with various issues in our church and really in the world as a whole. For example, there was a study done just last year. It's actually called the Journal of Sex. And they found that in, in America, 46% of men and approximately 20% of women regularly watch pornography to the point that you would almost consider them addicted to it. And other studies have found that people that regularly watch this kind of material, it not only damages them physically, but it actually has an impact on their relationships. So sexual immorality in our world today is just as damaging physically and spiritually as it is back in the ancient world of Corinth that was struggling with the same issues. So what does the Apostle Paul have to say about that? Well, he brings the conversation up higher. He says in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, meaning God, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. The Apostle Paul is saying very clearly that we are part of the body of Christ. We need to understand this because this is very profound. He's, he's saying that when we give our hearts to Christ, even though we are not perfect, even though that we may struggle, that we may fall, when we give our hearts to Christ and we are sincere in trying to follow him, we become holy. He works with us. The Holy Spirit works in us to ever sanctify us, to become more holy. We're not perfect. We're far from it. But we're in a process of becoming more holy. So he says, if you are part of the body of Christ, if you are holy and on the process of getting more holy, why would you disconnect yourself from the life giver? Why would you disconnect yourself from the person who's trying to make you more holy to actively pursue sexual immorality? He's trying to bring it up very high, get people thinking about the relationship with Christ and what it means when we turn away from it. Now, that being said, as I mentioned before, sexual immorality was a big issue at the time of Corinth. But it is interesting when you study this text, it is very clear, at least to me, that the, that the Holy Spirit was working through Paul to bring out a larger issue. Because it's not just sexual immorality. There were other things going on. This is one that he highlighted. But he uses the word harlotry, and you find that in the Bible, harlotry, sexual immorality, adultery is often used as a way to describe the nation of Israel when it is turning away from God. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 3. We're going to take a look at an example there. Jeremiah chapter 3. And we're going to start at verse 1. It says, They say if a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you, this is Israel, but you, Israel, have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. He's saying that the nation of Israel has been involved in many sins. And then come back to Jesus and say, okay, well, everything's good. The Apostle Paul, as I said, he talks about a variety of harlotries. If we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, stay with me, we're going somewhere today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
and we look at verse 9. Let's look at the harlotries that he lists out here, the sinful behaviors he lists out. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, those are giving and receiving in those acts, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or partiers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we have to understand that this list, if we study it carefully, we will see that the majority of the things in this list are things that are celebrated in our modern-day culture where you can live a life without uh, limits, where you can have it all, at least if you don't get caught. Think about this for a second. So neither fornicators, that means casual sex. We talked about that. Nor idolaters. Now, yes, we have people worshiping other gods, but, you know, we've got to a point, even within our churches, where some people will worship their children more than serving God. Some people love money so much that they will hold on to it instead of trying to use it for God's glory. It comes its own form of idolatry. You have adulterers, you have homosexuals. If you look on our television screens now, you'll see that these are kind of things that are now glorified. Thieves. Now, most people say, well, I'm not a thief. But many people, if you're honest, admit it, you're at work and you say, well, you know, I've worked really hard. I think I, I, I've earned that box of pencil, pencils. Or I've earned that tape dispenser. It's not the quantity or value of what you take, but what is in the mind before you take it. Nor covetous. This one, when you think about it, if we go through our homes, probably all of us have something that we have purchased because we're trying to keep up with the Joneses, something that we don't use much anymore, but we decided we have to be in style with the people around us, so we bought that. That is a product purchase of covetousness. It came out of a desire to be like someone else. Nor drunkards, nor partiers, nor extortioners. Now, extortioners, another Greek word for that would be swindlers. And think about this, even within our church, we have some people that will say to you, you know what, if you give me that money, I will get you a good deal on such and such. You give them the money, you're waiting for the deal. After a while, you're waiting to get your money back, and you don't see the money or the deal. And these are sometimes people in the church. I've experienced that myself. So these are all behaviors. We, we sometimes look at these texts and we think, well, this is not me. But this is just the same way it was an issue in Corinth. It is the same issue today. And in a life that is promoted without limits, in a life that is saying where you can have it all, these things started to affect the thinking of the people in Corinth. Now here's the real question. Here's the real core of it. How is it that this church plant that was planted by a man who had a personal encounter with Christ, who spent a year and a half personally tutoring the entire church on how to live a Christ-like life, how to, to, to study the word, how to be in a place of worshipful gratefulness. How is it, in fact, what I really should be saying is how is it that we as an Adventist church, when we have the full Bible, when we have the spirit of prophecy leading us, how is it that the church as a whole often falls into all kinds of harlotries, all kinds of sinful behaviors? Well, part of the answer to that actually comes back to slogans. You see, we live in a world 
where we constantly have messages bombarded into us that is completely opposite to the culture that Christ wants us to have. These messages keep coming at us in different types of media forms over and over again in the course of a day. Things that people start to enjoy, things that people want to partake in, that this is what the world is doing. And it's coming at us all the time and bombarded to the point that it starts to have an impact on our thinking. Every one of those images were real. It was either from a book, a movie, a television show, a poster ad. This one here was, uh, it may be hard, it says, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. This was actually from a campaign that occurred in a number of countries in Europe, I don't believe it came over here, where the, it was literally by an atheist group that was designed specifically to get people to forget or uh, put aside worshiping God. It was an actual campaign. And what happened in the city of Corinth with their slogans that they received on a daily basis on, and the messages of the people around them, even though they knew the truth, they were taught about Christ's righteousness. They were taught how to worship. They started to get attracted and to involve themselves in behaviors that they knew they, they shouldn't. It was a challenge for them. So we come to then the question. Some people see that this is the world that we live in. They say, well, you know, if I'm being bombarded by this, I don't want to be part of this world. So I got to isolate. I got to set myself apart. Maybe, the question is, maybe that's what we should do. Set ourselves apart from the world. But if we do that, then we misunderstand the mission that Christ has for us. Turn with me to John chapter 17, verse 15. John chapter 17, verse 15. We are working our Bibles today. John 17, verse 15. John chapter 17, verse 15. A verse worth highlighting or underlining in your Bible. This is Christ praying for the disciples, really. He's praying for all the disciples down through the ages of time. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus doesn't want us out of the world separating ourselves from the world. He wants us to be kept from evil. He wants us to be, have the power to avoid the harlotries of the world. You see, if we look at a comment in the book, Counsels to Parents, Teachers, and Students Regarding Christian Education, Ellen White says it best. Page 323, it says, The followers of Christ are to be separate from the world in principles and interests. So our value systems are to be different from the world. The things that we are interested in are to be different from the world. But they are not to isolate themselves from the world. There are some Adventists that think, well, you know, we got to have a little Adventist enclave, our little, our little special place out in the wilderness, a gated community where we can build each other up and stay away from the world. But that is not what Christ calls us to. We read on in what she says. It says, the Savior mingled constantly with people, not to encourage them in anything that was not in accordance with God's will, but to uplift and ennoble them. So the Christian is to be among people that the savor of divine love may be as salt to preserve the world from corruption. 
We have a mission. We are to take the gospel to the world. We are to meet our friends and neighbors and those in our community and share with them that gospel so that they, too, maybe have lives that are transformed. But we still have to look at the question, how do we do this and stay away from the harlotries, the sins of the world? We go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we start to get into our Bible reading that was read so well by Naomi. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we go to 19. This is probably the height of where the Apostle Paul is, is lifting people up, spiritually speaking, at least in my opinion. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now many of us know this, but this is such a profound couple of verses. We have to work our way backwards to really understand the depths of what is being said to us. For you were bought at a price. In the time of Corinth, and I'm asking this a question to you, at the time of Corinth, what kind of people were bought and sold? Slaves. The Apostle Paul is saying we are slaves of Christ. That we were bought with his blood on the cross that he rose again to make intercession for us, to help direct us in all of our actions. Now, let's think a little deeper now. When a slave goes about his business in town, is he really doing his business or his master's business? His master's business. What the Apostle Paul, remember, the Apostle Paul has already taught these people about Christ and his righteousness, about the Holy Spirit and its work. He's now taking them on to a different level, a nuanced level, if you will, of how they can live in this world that is surrounded by so many sinful acts. He's saying that when we go out in our worlds, when we see choices that we could make, because we all know when the choice is good or bad, He's saying that we have to say to ourselves, we have to pause for a second and say, who do we belong to? And when we say Christ, then we have to say, is this what my master wants of me? Does he really want me to engage in this behavior, purchase this thing, whatever it may be that leads us away from disconnecting from Christ? Just as a slave would say, should I do this? Would it please my master? We're supposed to be asking ourselves that question. We know the truth. We know what's right or wrong. But he's asking us now to dig a little deeper, to ask the really hard questions of ourselves, to give ourselves a moment of pause. But then he goes even really deep. This is the part that is just profound for me. It's verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God? Now we've all heard this, but I am sure we haven't really contemplated it to a certain level. What the Apostle Paul is saying that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God gave us that Holy Spirit, our being we are, are, we are the temple that is carrying the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think this one through. When you come to this church, when you come to this temple to worship God, do you worship the railings, the pews, the carpet? Yes or no? No. We come here because this is a center, stay with me now, because this is a center of spiritual activity. 
everything that is done in this place rises our thoughts upwards to our heavenly master. Every sermon that we hear pricks our mind, pricks our hearts, so we can think about how we serve God. When we fellowship, we're doing it in godly fellowship. We come here because it's a spiritual place of, a spiritual center of activity that strengthens our relationship with Christ. What the Apostle Paul is saying to everyone here, including myself, is that he wants us to be a place, a center of spiritual activity in our lives. Think about that. He wants us to be a place of spiritual activity in our schools, in our workplaces, in our community centers. So when people interact with us, they see that Holy Spirit in us. They see, wow, you know, how is it that this person seems to have a peace that goes beyond understanding? How is it that this person has, seems to have a joy, joy, joy deep down in their heart? How is it that this person is able to, to, to have a, a time of crying, but then he's happy the next day? How is he able to get through these things? And so they want to come to our temple to find out about this Holy Spirit, but we don't lead them to us. We lead them as a center of spiritual activity to Christ. The Apostle Paul, Christ, is saying each one of us, each one of us, on an individual basis, not a corporate basis, on an individual basis, so to be a center of spiritual activity. I want you to take a look at this picture. The young man giving Bible study. His name is Daniel. He heard the gospel. He believed in Christ and he was baptized. And when the world said you should go left, he ignored the slogans and heeded the call of the Holy Spirit and decided to become a missionary. He found the money on his own to go to Europe to preach the gospel to people that had never heard it before. Take a look at this picture. He is giving a Bible study to three young men. Look how engaged they are. They are. They're leaning in. They want to hear about the gospel. They want to hear about how God's word can transform their lives. It's hard to see it, but there's even a plate of food that has not been touched in front of one of those young men. Look how they're contemplating what is being said. They're desperately eager, interested to know what God has for their life. They're not coming to worship Daniel. They're coming to hear the work of God. He, Daniel, is a center of spiritual activity. You are witnessing the temple of the Holy Spirit in action. Here's the big point of all of this. We are coming down to the end of time. Christ is soon returning. Every day we see signs, now more than ever. And Christ is calling us to do a work. But we are busy posting pictures of our food on the internet. We are busy getting involved in covetous behavior and other harlotries while Jesus is saying, I have a mission for you individually to do a work in your families, in your, in your homes, in your communities, in your schools, wherever. But what are we really doing with our time? What are we really doing? Christ is calling us to think different. To not follow and to be defined by what the world is saying, but to be in a place where we are a center of spiritual activity. So that people will come to us and we have that privilege of guiding them to our Savior. So we can give glory in our body and in our spirit to what the Lord calls us to do. I'm not going to give an appeal 
today, but I'm going to ask that you close your eyes and I'm going to ask that you reflect on yourself. I'm going to ask three questions and I'm going to ask that you just reflect on your own situation as I ask these three questions. So just close your eyes, bow your heads, and I want you to just think about your situation. The first question is, what slogan of the world is affecting your walk with Christ? It may be a slogan, it may be a value system. What slogan or value system of the word world is affecting your walk with Christ? Now somebody in their head might be saying, no, I don't have one, but if you can remember those slogans and you never had to take a test for it, and it just infiltrated your mind, then trust, believe, and know there's some value system gnawing at your spiritual growth. If you do, if you know what it is, you need to disconnect from that because it's disconnecting you from Christ. If you're not sure what it is, that's okay because that's why we have a Savior that intercedes for us. We all need to have the, the, our sanctuaries of our hearts cleansed by our Savior who bled for us. So bring it to Him in prayer. Ask Him to break that bond, to cut it, to make you aware of it, whatever it takes so you can reconnect with the Savior? That's the first question. The second one is, what would your life look like if you were a center of spiritual activity? What kind of things would you be doing that you're not doing now? Where would you be going? And finally, the last one is, what step or steps could you take today when you leave this place to become what Christ has called us to be individually so we can give glory to him in our body and in our spirit. You can open your eyes. And I ask that God may bless you and transform you so we can all be that center, those, uh, uh, centers of spiritual activity in our lives. Amen.